Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney, uh, the two of us doing the job that we love so very much. Uh, in fact, Eric, I find myself enjoying podcasting to such an extent that Honestly, that week between our podcasts is just too much for me. I had to go and guest on somebody else's podcast in midweek. Uh, my friends Jared Gilkerson and Jason Karapeski invited me on their Aesthetically Speaking podcasts, in which we talked about boxing, yes, but also things such as favorite ring entrances and how I feel about tassels. I'm very <laughs> anti-tassel in a boxing context, by the way, in case you were wondering. But still, uh, thank you to Jared and Jason for that. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, listen, your 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 take on tassels is shared uh, by by your co-host on this podcast. I, uh, I think it is. And uh, I listened to that podcast uh, mostly. I was curious to learn how much worse you were at talking without me to carry your ass. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I listened. I enjoyed it, uh, and I learned something about you that I don't think I knew. Uh, although my memory ain't what it used to be, and it's possible I knew this and forgot about it. But anyway. Turns out you suffer from some color blindness, and uh, I gotta say, me too. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's compare notes. Uh, in case anyone didn't hear that podcast, uh, explain uh, your color blindness. Yeah, so I have what's you know the fairly classic red green color blind, which is the the predominant color blindness, which means in my case, some people don't see very well at the green end of the spectrum. I don't see very well at the red end of the spectrum, um, and so for me, like a lot of color blind people. Purple is my nemesis. Mm. Um, uh, I, I just repeatedly see it as dark blue. The, the red elements of it don't show up. And as I explained to, to Jared and Jason on the podcast, it actually was a contributory factor in the demise of a relationship <laughs> many years ago. That was doomed anyway. I had a girlfriend at the time who loved wearing purple and who did not comprehend my inability to see it. And because I was young and stupid, I didn't realize that when she would say to me, what do you think of this dress? And I'd say, very nice. Then when she goes, what color is it? I should have just lied and said purple. Right. And not said, Ooh, it's blue. Which is what I saw because it just sent her into a rage because she was convinced that I was deliberately not seeing purple in order to mess with her. <laughs> it, it was not a relationship that was going to succeed anyway. Yeah, I, I guess not. If, if, if that's going to set her off, you being wrong about the color of something, <laughs> yeah, yes. maybe, maybe yeah. not the one for you. Yes. Um, yeah, so... It sounds like we have somewhat similar colorblindness. I've never really uh, explored the whole red, green, and where I am on the spectrum thing or, or thought about it. But I'll tell you the story of how I found out I was somewhat colorblind. Uh, it was in college. Before that, I either wasn't colorblind or didn't know I was colorblind. Uh, but I was in college hanging out in my buddy's dorm room with him and another friend. And I said something about his green sneakers sitting on the other side of the room. And my two friends both looked at me like I was crazy, <laughs> unable to figure out what green sneakers I was talking about. Uh, so it was a split decision, two to one, in favor of the shoes being blue and not in any way green. And I actually thought they were messing with me. So we recruited another friend down the hall to inform me that the shoes were blue, not green. Uh -huh. uh, so I have what I think is pretty mild color blindness, some blues and greens, any dark blues and blacks. Uh, mm. blues and purples, sometimes tans or browns and purples kind of blur together a little. Uh, I will say, of all my various afflictions, you know, lactose intolerance, <laughs> mild scoliosis, this is definitely the easiest to live with. It doesn't really affect my life other than making me sound stupid on occasion. 
So I'm curious. So both of my brothers are colorblind. I'm I'm like in the middle. My one brother is much worse than I am, and another one is more sounds a little bit more uh, like you're, you. You're the forge that Goldilocks chose. Exactly. But I'm curious about like what, how your brothers are. Like, so it might not affect you, but Fred Raskin, I would have thought, could be quite seriously affected by an inability to see color. You know, you would you would think that uh, I should have had the curiosity to find out whether any of my brothers were colorblind, but as far as none of them have ever reported colorblindness that I know of. So I might be the only one of the four of us. I'm not sure. I mean, to be fair, it's only been 40 or so years. So, you know, <laughs> right. there's plenty of time to figure it out. Right. You see, that would require me to be interested in other people and care about I what's understand. going on in their lives. And, I you understand. know, yeah, got to look out for number one, Karen. Look, dude, if we weren't paid to do this, I wouldn't ask you a single thing about yourself. <laughs> Fair so enough. I, I get I get it. All right. Um, this week on the podcast, uh, coming to you during the long holiday weekend, perhaps you guys are listening to this on a beach in isolation somewhere or not. Um, but it's a little bit of a quiet before the storm week. Uh, the Showtime boxing schedule uh, heats up the rest of the month soon. Um, Life fights the preview and or review over the next few weeks. Uh, but this episode We'll cover some news as per usual. We'll have a couple of fights to discuss and a little bit of controversy uh, from the Las Vegas bubble. We will also open one, yes, one piece of listener mail. Um, but we'll get things started with, I think, what you could call the main event of this week's show. Uh, our guest this week is one of the most exciting contenders in the junior middleweight division. He has a professional record of 22-1 and with 16 KOs and still a month shy of his 25th birthday. He has a lot of career ahead of him. And that career continues on September 19th, when he returns to Showtime to take on Terrell Cachet. He is, of course, Erickson, the Hammer Lubin. Erickson, welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Hey, guys, what's going on? Well, you tell us. Um, <laughs> you know, you're the, you're the guy with the big date coming up. You know, one thing we, we, we'd love to try to get a, a sense of from you, you know, we've talked to a bunch of people over the last few months, it's obviously been a very strange period for all of us. Um, and every fighter has had a very different experience during the pandemic. Um, I'm curious what yours has been like. Uh, when were you able to get back into the gym? And was it tough keeping in shape as the lockdown dragged on? Um, not really. I, I've been in the gym all year because, you know, my gym is pretty private. You know, um, oh, okay. It, it, it's it's yeah it, it's a facility that Kevin Kevin got Kevin Cunningham you know I train with Kevin Cunningham he has a facility it's pretty private so we've been we we've been able to be in the gym all year so like not really it, it hasn't been a struggle um, getting in shape we've been in shape I've been ready to fight for some weeks now um, you know right now I'm just working on a few things putting the final touches on camp and you know um, September 19th around the corner right yeah. I- we we have a lot more questions for you about boxing, of course, but I'm curious while we're talking about the just the pandemic and how things have been different. I'm curious about your experience this year outside of boxing. Um, I, I understand one of your passions is music and that you do some recording in your garage. Uh, am I am I getting accurate information there? And is that something you've done a lot of while stuck at home? Uh, um, not not too much. I, I mean, I, I love music, but you know. Um... I haven't really been focused on music. I I just been in the house. I know my son. Um, you know I can't really be around too too many people. So like mm. you know, it's it's been a selective few I've been around. You know like, you know everyone that's that I'm around has actually been tested. Mm-hmm. You know um, and 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 they're negative. So 
you know, it's been a little different. It's been a little different in the gym because, you know, not anyone could come come by and spar anymore. You know, you can't just invite anyone to come by. Hmm. So, you know, with this pandemic happening, you know, I've been able to tap in with just, with just me and my trainer, tap in with just myself and just be, be, be more dialed in. Right. You, you mentioned your son. How old is your son? He's three years old. Three. Okay, so how challenging has that been? Uh, uh, I, my kids are a little bit older, but I have brothers uh, who have kids around three years old. Um, has has that been tough to uh, to, to to keep him occupied uh, during all this? Um, not really, not really. He, he he, I have fun with him, so you know, okay. he, he, <laughs> he makes fun out of it, out of anything. He he, nice. he see anything, he can make fun out of it. Nice. Um, so, you know, at least partly because of this COVID shutdown, this has been the longest layoff of your career. Uh, be almost 11 yeah. months come fight night since, since we last saw you in action. Um, but you fought three times last year. So obviously you're, you're the kind of guy who likes to be busy to, to, to fight as often as you can. So, you know, even though you've been training, like how difficult has it been to how frustrating to not actually be in the ring in a fight? Um, it's a bit frustrating. Um, yeah, I like to, I like to stay busy. I love staying busy. You know, um, you know, the more, the more active I am, the, the, the better the performance, but you know, um, I've been in the gym all year, all year round. So, you know, I, I plan on just picking up where I left off, you know, my mm-hmm. last performance with Gallimore and, you know, um, I plan on, I plan on coming this fight better than I was that fight. You know, I, I've still been working on stuff like, you know, this year actually flew by to me. I feel like mm-hmm. this year flew by. It was it's real fast, but you know I'm I'm ready to fight. So you know, come fight night, no excuses. I'm ready to work. Yeah, it's been weird. I've been saying that to people as well. It feels like on the one hand, this year has lasted forever with everything, and yet on the other hand, like every day just seems to go flying past. It's been weird. Yeah, it has. It has. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the the Gallimore fight. Um, that was he was a replacement opponent you were supposed to fight Terrell Gachet last October but he suffered a hand injury and was replaced by Gallimore who you looked real good against beat him by near shutout decision um when Gachet dropped out you called him a not so nice name on Twitter and uh, you guys went back and forth a little bit uh, is is there still bad blood there between you and Gachet um it's still the same I won't call it bad blood but you know we both had some words but you know um Come fight night. I'm gonna let my hands do the talking. You know, um, I'm I'm not a fan of Gachet. Um, I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to put him in his place. Did you believe at the time he was overstating his injury and could have gone ahead with the fight? Did you Did you not believe the excuse necessarily? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm not in his camp. I'm not in his camp. He probably did have an injury, but you know, there's no better time than now. The fight's been made, and September 19th to date. So let's get it on. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, at the time, uh, after the Gachet canceled and you fought Gallimore, uh, Kevin Cunningham said at the time that he thought Gallimore was actually tougher than Gachet. Now that you fought Gallimore, is that how you feel that you've actually already beaten the tougher opponent? Um, I, I don't know. I, I underestimate Gachet either, but you know, um, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like Gallimore is the, the, the bigger puncher. Um, technique wise, I think Gachet got him in that department. Um, and you know, I feel like it, it'd be no different whether I get the knockout or not. I, I'm I'm going there September 19th to come out on top like I did with Gallimore. So, you know, I'll be able to tell you who's the tougher opponent after the after the fight. And you know, um, yeah. 
And you, you mentioned that you're going to let your, your hands do the talking on September 19th. I love that each of your fists has a name. Uh, you're, you're the hammer. Uh, so your, your fists are Jack yeah. and Sledge. Jack I believe, and Sledge, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I believe Sledge is Jack the left and, Sledge, and Jack baby. is the right. Is, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so here's the question. Who's going to be more important versus Gachet, Jack or Sledge? Mm-hmm. Both of them. Both of them. They're always both important. <laughs> okay, but is it? But sty- stylistically, it, like, is uh, the you know the the jab with you're a southpaw, so the jab with with uh, with Jack is uh is, is the jab a big part of this uh of this matchup? Do you think? They're they're both they're both important. Okay, they're both important. They're, they're both important. <laughs> I, tr- I I tried to give you a Sophie's choice and make you make you choose, but you were you refused to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they both important. Okay, I'm let both of them do the talking. <laughs> uh, sort of somewhat related to that, you know. You know, Gachet's got quite a lot of experience against southpaws, and, and you'll be his fourth southpaw opponent in a row. So, given that you can switch pretty easily and quite yeah. often, does Wait, that mean we expect you to see a question? Yeah. Can, can oh. I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah. This is fourth southpaw in a row, right? Yes. Yep. But That's right. Um, how many of them did he beat? Yeah, I believe it's uh, what he's one, one, and one. Is that is that right against those three yeah. southpaws? Okay, I, I, <laughs> I, I was just I was curious because he's saying he fought four southpaws in a row, but right, you know, I'm nothing, not, nothing against those southpaws. You know, they're they're, they're great fighters. Like, um, um, Lara's a great southpaw. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Trout's a great southpaw. Whether or not you know, people might say he's old, and people might say he's washed up. He's still a great southpaw in my opinion, but. You know these guys aren't as young as me. They don't. They ain't got the punching power I do, and 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 the speed. You know, so he's going in there with a different southpaw. This isn't this isn't a 38, 39 year old Trout and Laura. You know, mm-hmm. this is a 24. This is a 24 year old Erickson Lubin, the hammer. Right. right, and of course the other thing you know that you bring to the table, you can switch it up if you want to. And do you think that that's yeah. something that you might be doing? You know, uh, I'll, I'll be able to tell you on fight night, man. You, okay. you just gonna have to, you know, you gonna have to wait and see. I can't give you all the game. You might end up telling. Good I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Gache definitely listens to the podcast. So you do, you do want to keep it close <laughs> to the vest just in case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you do that, is that just based on feel? You don't go into a fight generally going, yeah, you know, I'm going to probably go, go orthodox in this fight. That's just purely on how the fight is going. Right. Right, right, right. Everything is calculated. Everything is, you know, adjustment. Everything is, you know, it's it's how I see it. Right. So uh, one week after your fight in in the same weight division, Jermel Charlo and Jason Rosario meet on Showtime pay per view. How do you see that fight going? Um, it, it's an exciting fight. I think that's a very exciting fight because both guys are big punchers. Um. I'm not sure. I, I think Charlo. I think Charlo actually takes this takes this fight. Mm-hmm. Um, Rosario. Rosar, I mean, unless he, unless he sits there in front of Rosario, trying to trying to make it a tough man contest. You know, um, both men both men got uh, punching power that's able to put one another out. So we're just gonna have to wait and see. I think Charlo's more athletic on his feet, and he he, he boxes a little bit more and better than Rosario, but Rosario. Um, He's a big puncher, so like I said, we're gonna have to wait and see. But I think uh, Charlo comes out on top. Right. Okay. And and you've you know bounced back tremendously since your your fight with Charlo. That is still the the one defeat on your record. If you don't eventually get another crack at Charlo, 
will you feel unfulfilled? Is that like something that, that must happen in your mind that you need to get another shot at him? Um, right now I'm, I'm just chasing the world titles. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not really chasing Charlo, Okay. but you know, if, you know, when I come out on top September 19th, I'm the mandatory for the title. So if he takes care of business on the 26th, then, you know, that's, that, you know, you're going, you're going to be looking at Lou Charlo too. And that's definitely what I want. And, you know, I need the, I need some revenge on that. If that's how it plays out, you know? Mm, right. All right, before we let you go, as long as we've got you, I'd love to get your take on a subject that's it's only really loosely connected to you. Uh, your former promoter, Mike Tyson, is apparently planning an exhibition bout against Roy Jones, and that's kind of like divided opinion among people about how they feel about this. What's your opinion about it, and are you interested? Will you watch that? Yeah, I would. Hell yeah. Mike is still, he's still aggressive, and he looks, you know, he looks fast. I I've I seen a whole bunch of Instagram posts of him hitting the mitts and everything. He's been working out. So um, it's going to be exciting to see a 50-year-old Mike Tyson go in the ring with a, you know. Well, Roy Jones, he, 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 I think he fought like, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago? Right. Yeah, a couple so of years ago. He hasn't been out yeah. the ring very long. He has, yeah, he hasn't been out the ring very long. But I think, I think seeing Mike Tyson get back in the ring is just going to be exciting. Um, he still looks like he got that punching power and he's able to, you know, put someone out. So we're gonna we're gonna see how what happens when they uh when they square up. It's gonna be exciting. Okay. The fans are tuned in. I'm I'm definitely a fan of that. Okay. All right. And la lastly, uh, we've all been stuck inside for most of the last six months or so, and most of us have found time to watch old fights on YouTube during uh during this lockdown. Uh, do you have an all time favorite? A fight you can watch over and over and and never get tired of it. I have a few. I mean, I don't. I don't have just one. I have a few. Uh, I'm, and I have a few fighters I watch all the time. I watch boxing before before this pandemic. I watch boxing all the time. I mm -hmm. watch the prospects. I watch everybody. I watch the old fights. I love watching Sugar Ray Leonard, I, I, and I love watching Floyd Mayweather. I love watching Pennell Whitaker, um, Marvin Hagler. Those are the those are the those are the guys I watch every time I put on YouTube. Like. Whether it's a pandemic or not, I'm always watching those guys. And and Marvin Hagler versus Ray Leonard as one of my favorites. Um, Floyd Floyd and Canelo, I, I love that fight. Mm. Um, Pennell Pernel versus Chavez. Um, those are all great fights. Those are those are the fighters I, I usually watch. Um, uh, Wilfred Benitez versus Sugar Ray Leonard, another great fight. Mm -hmm. Thomas Hearns versus Sugar Ray Leonard. Great fight. Um, I watch May. I, I watch every Mayweather fight there is. Mayweather versus Sean Bay Mitchell. May, Mayweather versus Chop Chop Corley versus Balder. Every every Mayweather fight, I'm, I'm watching it. Versus nice. Patton, like I, I watch. I watch everybody. I watch everybody. Well, I have to ask. Those are my favorites. I, I have to ask a follow up on on one of those. Uh, the, one of the first ones you listed. Who won, Leonard Hagler? Leonard versus Hagler. I yeah. feel like I mean it, it was a, it's a, it's a big toss up. It was a big toss up, and from what from what I've seen, I, I don't think I don't think Marvin Hagler fought after that because what he thought he got robbed or something. Yeah. But it, it was a close fight. Ray, Ray Leonard, Ray Leonard, he was able to steal a lot of rounds in my opinion. But you know, if anything, we could have called it a draw, man. It could have been a draw. Okay, and and one one more then uh, since. Since since you threw all those names out there, uh, a fantasy fight that people debate about all the time, Ray Leonard against Floyd Mayweather at welterweight. Mayweather. 
I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. Yep, uh, yep. Uh, I'm not sure, man. You know, um, Mayweather's defense is, is 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 crazy. It's impeccable, but you know, Ray Leonard, he has he, he got he got height over Mayweather. I, I feel like he he probably he has power over Mayweather, but you know, you gotta you gotta be able to hit Mayweather. You know, Mayweather right. he, he he's almost untouchable, man. He so that that's definitely a fight I, I would I would love to see too. So I don't know. I can't call it. Okay. Nice. Just just like Jack and Sledge, you can't choose. Yeah. <laughs> it 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 never happened. So you know. Right. I right. can't really say what happened. Right. right. <laughs> hey man, look, Erickson, this has been really great. I really, really appreciate you putting some time aside. Um, you know, being so close to the fight and everything. Thanks so much for joining us, and all the best on September nineteenth. And thank you guys for having me. All right, that was fun. Uh, had a good build to it. Uh, Erickson was just heating up at the end. Uh, we should have scheduled it for 12 rounds instead of 10. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, speaking of Erickson, Lubin, and scheduled rounds, we kick off the news segment with the announcement of the two undercard fights for September 19th on Showtime. When Showtime revealed its fall schedule back in July, Lubin Gachet was to be supported by Tug Nyambayar versus Eduardo Ramirez and Jaron Boots Ennis versus TBA. Uh, well, uh, King Tug's opponent has changed, and uh, now we know who the TBA for Boots Ennis is. Uh, Ennis is facing Dominican veteran Juan Carlos Abreu, and after Ramirez dropped out due to an unspecified health issue, Nyambayar now faces Barbados native Kobia Breedy, who is undefeated at 15-0. We will, of course, preview all three fights on this card in depth next week, but for now, quick reactions or impressions about these two undercard fights getting finalized? Um, I had not heard of uh, Kobe Abridi prior to this, um, but, you know, as you sort of like hinted at there, he, he, he was already booked on the non, non-televised undercard, and, right. you know, what Showtime have been doing, what everyone's been doing, is sort of overstacking the undercards on the expectation that, for whatever reason right now, somebody's going to drop out. Um, he, uh, he, uh, he's from Barbados, uh, he's undefeated, as you mentioned, um, uh, though he's only once been past six rounds. This feels like quite a step up mm. uh, uh, for him, um, although he is from Barbados. He trains out of Maryland under the guidance of Barry Hunter, who's best known for nurturing and training the Peterson brothers. Uh, and his middle name is Shambay, not, however, after Maryland's Shambay Mitchell, but apparently after a bare knuckle boxer from Ghana. So there you go. That's all the that's now you all know as much pretty much uh, about Kabir Breedy as I do. Um, but while Breedy's been past six rounds only once, that's actually one more time than Boots Ennis. And uh, Abreu looks like a really good opponent, I think, for uh, Ennis at this stage of his career. Really good measuring stick kind of uh, opponent. You'd expect Boots to win, but Abreu, even though he's been down a few times in his career, he's never been stopped. Uh, and I think going up against a veteran who'll give him some rounds, um, possibly all the rounds, is, is, right. is really a good part of Ennis' development right now. Although, of course, he'll be looking to not do that and to sort of really make a statement by uh, by being the first guy to halt Abreu inside the distance. Yeah, so I like I like both of those uh, fights. I think they're both interesting matchups. Uh, the other notable fight coming together this past week, uh, though it's not quite finalized yet. Um, Bob Aram has told ESPN that Naoya, the monster in Naoya, will make his top-ranked debut on October 31st in the bubble at MGM Grand against Australia's Jason Maloney, who's already fought in aforementioned bubble, uh, stopping Leonardo Baez on June 25th. Uh, Eric, I think I know the answer to this, but do you see Maloney providing much of a test for Naoya? 
Uh, probably not. Uh, that was the answer you were expecting, I yeah, presume. I yeah. But uh, that said, I don't see him as a total no-hoper either. He's he's on the bottom edge of what I'd consider a reasonable opponent for Inoue. Look, Inoue hasn't fought since winning the fight of the year over Nonito D in November 2019. <laughs> uh, it'll be just shy of a full 12 months by fight night. Uh, he's 27. He's in his prime. We got to get him fighting again. So if you can't get an elite opponent for him, I'll take Inoue versus a pretty solid guy with upside, which is what Maloney is. Also, I mm. like the fight date. Saturday, October 31st, Halloween. Get the monster in action on Halloween. Uh, you know, the promotion uh, writes itself. I'll and, tell you what. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Takes me back 22 years to a Halloween night fight in Atlantic City. Nassim Hamed versus Wayne McCulloch. Jesus, uh, 22 years ago? Yeah, yes, we are old. We are old. Wow. Uh, but, uh, you know, not a very entertaining fight, as it turned out, but a memorable show from the Prince. And uh, yep. McCulloch showed one hell of a chin that night. Uh, he was expected to lose by knockout by most people, but he lasted the distance. I will be mighty impressed uh, by Jason Maloney if he lasts the distance with the monster. Yeah. Uh, in other news about the fall fight schedule, NBC is getting back into boxing. Following about a four-year absence since the PBC on NBC series ended, The Athletic reports that sports media startup Ring City will produce a Thursday night series on NBC Sports Network beginning November 19th with three cards planned for 2020, all taking place inside an unnamed, quote, famed gym in Southern California. Uh, Kieran and I know some of the people behind Ring City, a couple of our competitors in the boxing podcast space, <laughs> uh, Evan Rutkowski, whom we worked with at HBO Sports, and Kurt Emhoff, a, a lawyer whom I've known at least tangentially going back to the early 2000s when he was Corey Spinks's manager. Former The Contender consultant Sam Katkowski is also part of the Ring City Brain Trust. We don't know any of the fights yet, but they're talking about modest budget cards and competitive matchups. Kieran, speaking as fans and journalists, and not necessarily Showtime representatives, you can't have too many networks getting into boxing, right? No, absolutely. And it'll be intriguing to see how this works out. So as I understand it, uh, their elevator pitch is that, you know, unlike basically every other network or streaming platform, they are not going to have any kind of exclusive uh, relationship with any promoters and a open to making deals with anybody and everybody um, on the condition, as you said, that the matchups are, are even and competitive. Um, I suspect that'll be difficult to make work because so many promoters are tied into, um, you know, one network or, or another and don't want to mess up that business. But right. but there are also a lot of smaller promoters out there who are, who are looking for that platform. So um, if it does work uh it promises to have that it feels like it should have a nice gritty exciting club show feel to it and that's been missing on tv really ever since tuesday night fights disappeared Mm. hasn't it there's just not been that kind of low you know relatively low budget kind of uh a card available on tv on a regular basis so you know and one of the things i was thinking about i don't know about you was that this made me feel that i hope we're able to get crowds back at event soon because this feels like you know in a small environment with just a small and raucous crowd that's the kind of thing that would really make a difference for the energy and atmosphere for this this kind of broadcast i thought yeah that would certainly uh, enhance something like this and just as far as uh you know not having 
the club fights on TV since, you know, Tuesday night fights went off the air. I, I think on, on a national level, you're right. You know, locally, you get some stuff like the Broadway boxing show sure, that, that sure. air locally in the New York market or whatever. But yeah, so something more in the club fight uh, vein, especially if these matchups do end up being com- real competitive ones like uh, like they're aiming for. And you get all different promoters sending different fighters out for these. Uh, yeah, it definitely is something that could enhance the uh, boxing TV menu. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's great that you know even seeing as many platforms as there are out there, NBC wants to get back into it again. So that yeah. I think that's fantastic. Says a says a lot about the state of boxing right now. Um, talking of the state of boxing, here's something that we don't like to talk about: sanctioning body rankings. Hmm. Um, but this one is just too maddening to ignore. Uh, in the I even hate to mention the name of the sanctioning body, but they deserve it in this case. And the WBA's middleweight rankings, Sergio Martinez, 45 years old, fresh off a win over club fighter Jose Miguel Fandino in his first bout in more than six years, has appeared as the number six ranked 160 pounder in the world. Um, the utter cravenness of these people is amazing. They, they, they seem to realize, I'm sure they realize what the reaction is going to be to all of these things that they do. But they know that boxers like belts. They know that there are enough casual fans who don't know that, quote unquote, world titles aren't necessarily actual world championships. Or that who think that an intercontinental America's interim ruby belt isn't you know, don't realize that that's not actually a thing of consequence. You know, I was thinking about this and I'm like, the easy thing to call these people is vultures. But you know what? Vultures play an extremely important ecological role. (laughs) And they wait till you're dead. And, you know, they're kind of majestic to observe as they saw on thermals. I like vultures. So they're not vultures. (laughs) These guys are the tapeworms of boxing. Um, And Given that the entire boxing world is basically one giant excrement-filled intestine anyway, it's no wonder, really, that they've been able to burrow themselves in deep and make themselves at home. So, anyway, that's all I've got to say about that. Um, Look, I know your policy is to ignore the alphabets whenever possible, but eh, sometimes you just can't ignore them, right? Yeah, uh, excellent use of metaphors there. Thank uh, you, sir. Taking your expertise uh, in terms of uh, the 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 animal world, and uh, wow, uh, I, I I didn't see that one coming. But yes, lower than vultures by far is a fine way to describe all of the alphabet <laughs> groups, but particularly the WBA. This. You know, this is disgusting, even by alphabet standards, this ranking, even by WBA standards, as the WBA has managed to distinguish itself as clearly the least reputable sanctioning body, which is really saying something. Um, They, of course, have two so-called champions at middleweight. Uh, Canelo Alvarez and Ryota Murata are both the champion of the world, which indicates a failure to comprehend what the word champion means. Uh, But then you look down the rankings. And there's Sergio Martinez now at number six. How can anybody take any of these rankings seriously? Active rankings are not lifetime achievement awards. Uh, I I have no reason to believe uh, that there's a top 100 middleweight that Martinez can currently beat. Maybe he could, but he certainly hasn't uh, illustrated that and proven it. And you're telling me he deserves the number six spot? 
I would love to tell you this is less bad than when the WBO ranked a dead guy. Uh, but but at least that wasn't intentional, I don't think. That seemed to have been a sloppy oversight that they right. didn't realize he was not alive anymore. Um, this is no which, oversight. Which, which speaks volumes in and of itself, but yes. <laughs> right, right. Yes, it's, it's a really bad mistake to make, but still a mistake, you know, whereas this is very much purposeful and it's shameful and it's part of why I just can't bring myself to call someone a world champion just because he was maneuvered into an alphabet belt. Title holder, belt holder, those are terms I use. Those are fine. But I will not diminish the word champion by letting people who would rank Sergio Martinez number six tell me what a champion is. Damn right. All right. Well, uh, Sergio Martinez is unretired. Not so for Akira Yegashi as the former 105, 108, and 112-pound titleist from Japan announced his retirement last week at the age of 37 with a record of 28-7, and 7, 16 KOs. His notable bouts included winning the 2011 Fight of the Year, not according to the BWAA, but according to me and most of the media members who bothered to watch it. Yeah. Uh, that was against Pornsawan Porpramuk. Uh, that's one fight he's well known for, and the other is running into the buzzsaw that was prime Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez in 2014 losing by ninth round stoppage a few decades ago if you had won titles in three different divisions you were headed for the hall of fame now there are so many titles floating around that being a three-weight belt holder doesn't mean as much and i don't expect yagashi to end up in canastota but he had a fairly accomplished career i'm sure you'd agree karen yeah not a Hall of Famer, but a Hall of the pretty darn gooder. Um, yes. You know, a Cliff Roll did a very Cliff Rolldian deep dive uh, into his stats over at Boxing Scene the other day. Um, you know, and he didn't meet or beat uh, too many other very gooders. But when he'd lost, it was generally only to, like, highly regarded, highly ranked guys. Uh, mm. And he was quite often in exciting fights. Um, and I think, while it is true there are too many titles floating around, I think of one of those weight divisions, at least he was really the champion, I think, for a couple, like a lineal champion for a couple of defenses or something. So, look, he, uh, exciting fighter, good career, best of luck to him in retirement. Yep. All right. Um, a couple of sad notes to pass along. Uh, first two-time lightweight belt holder, Jean-Baptiste Mendy of France. Died of cancer on August 31st at age 57. Uh, he went 55, 8, and 3 over a 17-year career that ended in 2000. Uh, he fought the likes of Miguel Angel Gonzalez, Stevie Johnston, Orzebek Nazarov, Lamar Murphy. Um, so rest in peace to him. Uh, also, Mexican super flyweight Jose Gaito Quirino, uh, son of former title holder Jose Gallo Quirino, uh, was shot and killed in Tijuana last week at just 24 years old. My God. Um, he had a record of 23 and 3, uh, and that included a 2018 win over Hernan Tyson Marquez. Uh, Eric, anything to add about either Carino or Mendy? Yeah, Carino, just uh, 24. What a, what a tragedy. Oh. Um, not that Mendy's death isn't tragic also, right. but at least he lived a somewhat full life. Uh, I, I don't know much about Carino. It doesn't appear from looking at his record and the quality of opposition uh, that he had that he was a world-class fighter, but that's irrelevant. Uh, just just awful to hear. Uh, as for Mendy, I do recall his career, at least the late stages oh. of it. Uh, I remember him upsetting the unbeaten Nazarov uh, when Mendy was 35 years old. He's a guy who was around a long time, got no title shots until he was in his 30s. And 
uh, more than 50 fights into his career. Uh, and then he did uh, go on to win a couple of belts. Hadn't heard his name in about 20 years or so before this, um, but he was a good fighter. And uh, yeah, it's certainly a sad way to have his name uh, pop back up. So uh, yeah, as you said, definitely. rest in peace to both of them. Um, not a lot of in-ring action to talk about this week, uh, but we do have ourselves a pretty good transition from that tragic news into Saturday's ESPN Plus card as boxer DeAndre Ware prevented a tragedy just before the weigh-in. In case anyone hasn't heard this story yet, super middleweight Ware, whom we've seen on Showbox several times, was on hand filling out paperwork prior to the weigh-in on Friday when top rank event coordinator Pete Susans suddenly collapsed. Ware is a firefighter in his native Toledo, Ohio, and he has emergency medical training. So he sprung into action and performed chest compressions and helped revive Susans, who was soon taken to the hospital and is reportedly expected to make a complete recovery. Just a remarkable story. DeAndre Ware saved a life inside the bubble. A nice contrast to yes. most of what 2020 <laughs> has brought. Um, unfortunately for Ware, his fight the next night didn't go as well. He was stopped in round six by unbeaten Steven Nelson. That was the co-feature to Jamel Herring versus Jonathan Okendo, which ended in confusion and a degree of controversy when referee Tony Weeks disqualified Okendo after the eighth round. Herring had dropped Okendo with an uppercut in round three and was in control of the bout. And in round five, Herring was cut over the right eye from a head clash that Weeks ruled intentional on the part of Okendo. Three rounds later, in the corner between rounds eight and nine, Herring said he couldn't see, so Weeks stopped the fight and ruled a DQ, setting off debate among the Nevada officials on hand, among the broadcasters, among the boxing Twitterati, about what the correct ruling was. Uh, Kieran, do you want to weigh in on this messy ending to a somewhat ugly fight? Or would you rather just focus on DeAndre Ware saving a life and pretend Herring Akendo never happened? Um, well, that's a bit of both, but let's, first of all, let's focus on the positive, right? Uh, thank heavens DeAndre Ware was, was there when he was. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember, obviously we've seen fighter notes about, about Ware when he was on Showbox. I don't remember the fact that he was a firefighter, um, but thank heavens that he was and that he was able to respond so swiftly and by the sounds of things, probably saving Pete's life. Yeah. Um, pity for them, for him that Saturday night then happened. Uh, it does go to show that there's no sentiment, room for sentiment in the boxing ring. But uh, yeah, he joins Joseph Parker in our Boxers Who Deserve Special Recognition <laughs> yes. Award grouping, I think, no? Yeah. <laughs> Um, as for the fight, well, the main event, it, it was certainly messy on just about every level, wasn't it? Um, it was a messy fight, largely because of a kendo. It was a messy ending. Um, so my initial instinct watching this was that the Nevada commission had gotten it wrong initially, um, that Bob Bennett had sown confusion in what was a very clear situation, but actually he, he should have stuck to his guns. He was right. Um, I, I'm, I've got the unified rules of the association of boxing commissions here, um, in front of me. And it's actually very clear on this, and I was surprised by this. Uh, under intentional fouls, uh, says if an intentional foul causes an injury and the injury is severe enough to terminate the bout immediately, the boxer causing the injury shall lose by disqualification. But if an intentional foul causes an injury and the bout is allowed to continue and the injury results in the bout being stopped in any round after the fourth round, the injured boxer will win by technical decision if he is ahead on the scorecards. Um, the only difference is with an intentional and unintentional, he can't lose. So if he's even behind on the scorecards, 
it's a technical draw. Hmm. But Bob Bennett was right. It should have gone to the scorecards. Not that it really makes that much difference in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Herring won, and he should have won. But um, anyway, oh, also, Tony Week should have deducted two points under right. the rules of the Association of Boxing Commissions. But um, I did think that Tony did a very good job in the corner there when uh, Bomack was clearly looking for some indication of what would happen if Herring pulled out. And uh, Tony was not going to give him that information. <laughs> right. uh, I, thought, I thought he played that very well. Um, but, gosh, um, I don't know whether he's correct in calling the foul intentional. That seems... I don't know. It was it was ugly fighting. He was clearly leading with his head. Was he intentionally hitting him with the head? I I don't know. Um, did Herring want out after that injury happened? It sure looked like it. Um, it did look like he kind of fell apart. I, I don't feel very qualified to question him for doing so. It, it's bad enough being punched in the head all night, but being constantly butted must hurt like a son of a bitch. And I, I'm sure it affects your focus and your decision making. And I and I don't blame him if he was thinking you know what this is just i want out of here um it's it's just really unfortunate for jamel herring that the two boxes on commentary were two guys who were absolutely renowned for dishing it out in the trenches who were like really good technicians but they had no qualms about trading in the dark arts when needed so right. he was not going to get any sympathy from timothy bradley and andre ward and, and nor did he um it did all clearly affect Herring, who, who tweeted afterwards that he was kind of affected by the negativity that he saw. He made the mistake, apparently, of going on Twitter when uh, he went to the hospital. Um, never go on Twitter, ever. Um, <laughs> uh, and, he tweet, and he said, you know, yeah, he still hopes to fight Carl Frampton, but maybe that'll just be his last fight, and then he'll ride off into the sunset. Um, he's probably hoping he's tested positive for COVID one more time. <laughs> right. Really? So, yeah, just, just all a bit of a mess. Yeah, so um, you, you hit on a, a few things that, that stood out to me as well. I guess there's sort of two separate things to break down with this fight. The, the ruling and Herring's performance and behavior. Uh, And so, yeah, in terms of the ruling, I saw those same ABC rules that that you did. It seems pretty straightforward uh, what should have been done, and it seems fairly clear that the decision that that Weeks and Bennett and Joe Cortez ultimately reached after discussing it, that they got the rules wrong on this one. So, yeah, not that it matters in the big picture or even in the small picture, but this is one result that they probably ought to go back after the fact and yeah. officially change to a technical decision. But I'm right with you in questioning Tony Weeks's ruling that it was intentional. You know, there was a pattern of a kendo leading with his head, but the butt that cut Herring's eye, it's not like he moved his head in an yeah. intentional way. He was just charging in uh, to me. That was an accidental foul, and when they stop it, everybody knows that you go to the scorecards uh, under that situation. Um, but yeah, as for Herring and and you know the question of of did he want out? You know, th- this is a question that pops up every now and then. Is I can't see the same as I quit or stop mm. the fight? Mm. It's not. You know, so- sometimes it's just a statement of fact. Uh, I can't see, and that's concerning, and you, my cornerman, ought to know that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's a gray area. Once you say, I can't see, you are basically forcing the ref's hand. And the fight has to be stopped. And so, you know, the the most crazy, brave fighters in history, the Arturo Gatti types, they would never say, I can't see. But, 
it's not really fair to measure everyone else against Arturo Gatti in that regard. I saw Adam Abramowitz on Twitter uh, compare it to the Mikey Garcia Orlando Salido situation. Mm. Um, and that's a good reference point. Similar gray area in terms of it's not exactly a quit, but it can be interpreted as a fighter looking for a way out in a fight that was somewhat demanding. Uh, but you, you mentioned the the ESPN crew, those two guys being tough on Herring, Tim Bradley saying he gave up and wanted out, and Andre Ward agreeing. But what do those guys know about boxing? They're just media <laughs> members. They've never boxed in there. Oh, wait. No, yeah. That, that line of attack doesn't work here. Um, yeah. I, I did think that, uh, you know, Herring addressed it fairly intelligently on Twitter. If one has to go on Twitter, I thought what he said uh, seemed legit. I, I just found it interesting also that he uh, said, I need to tighten up for Frampton. Yep. Simple, yep. simple as that, uh, which opens up a subject for another day, uh, whether Herring changed the odds on a Frampton fight at all here with this performance. But I guess we can go deeper into that when that fight is signed, which due to the cut. I don't know if it will be in 2020 or not, but uh, yeah, if this was designed to smoothly set up Herring Frampton, it didn't quite go as top rank planned. Yeah, it's just, this is just one of those fights that has, that fits the definition of having been snake bit from beginning to end. And I'm sure that everybody involved is glad that it's now all over. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) All right. Um, We apologize for not commenting on Sunday night's Fox card headline boy, Ordenis Ugas, um, but that we're recording before those fights take place. Uh, but if something, if by the time you listen to this, something spectacular has happened and it is in fact the story with which we should have led this <laughs> week's podcast, we'll uh, cover it next week. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, uh, only one televised card in the US coming up this week. Uh, it's a minor one in Las Vegas with no disrespect meant to the fighters involved on ESPN+. Egegis Kavalowskis meets Michael Zuski in a 10-round welterweight bout. And on the undercard, Miguel Mariaga and Joette Gonzalez and Andrew Cancio against Saul Rodriguez. Uh, any quick thoughts on that card, Eric? I don't dislike the card, actually. Uh, Kavalowskis, fans will recall, gave Terence Crawford a decent fight last time out in what might unfortunately be remembered as Terence Crawford's final fight. Uh, <laughs> who knows when we'll see him again. Uh, the, the matchup with Zuski is solid. Uh, Mariaga Gonzalez is a decent matchup between a guy who fought Shakur Stevenson and a guy who was supposed to fight Shakur Stevenson. Uh, and, and I like watching Cancio fight. Uh, you know, there's nothing I'm excited for here. I'm probably watching it Sunday morning instead of Saturday night, but I would predict light use of the fast forward function rather than mm. heavy usage that might tire out my fast forwarding thumb. Right. And the timing of the viewing is less a commentary on the fight than on, you know, <laughs> me, me being washed. You can say it. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to say that because that then reflects poorly on me as well. <laughs> right. Well, yes. But there you go. We are Boxing's Most Collectively Washed Podcasting Duo. We are. We have we that are. title. Yes. That's right. Um, all right. Uh, before we go, we didn't put out a mailbag call this week, but uh, we got an interesting tweet sent our way. So let's go ahead and do the miniest of mini mailbags, one letter only, from Paul Newman, not that Paul Newman, who writes... Hey guys, I just finished a book about Edwin Valero and wonder what your thoughts are on how good he was and could have become and how a Pacquiao fight may have gone. Uh, Kieran, are you among those who believe Valero was headed for greatness and could have defeated Manny Pacquiao? Um, I suspect I know the book that he means. Um, uh, Berserk, probably. The right. Shocking Life and Death of Edwin Valero by our friend Don Stradley. Um, Valero was something interesting. Uh, before I like give the simple answer to the question... Um, 
I wrote a piece for Boxing News in the UK about Valero a few years ago, and uh, I was ringside for one of his fights, um, one of his very last ones against Antonio Pitalua in Austin, Texas. I don't remember what the hell I was doing there. Uh, I know I live blogged it for ESPN, but why that was, you know, reason enough for me to go to Austin, Texas for this, I, I don't know. Um, but that's by the by. Um, there weren't a lot of media there. Uh, I was staying at the Fighter Hotel, and I had a couple of interactions with Valero over the course of the week. Um, you know, I interviewed him with a translator. Uh, he seemed super friendly. And even though we didn't speak each other's languages, by the end of fight week, you know, he'd see me, and he'd come up to me, and he'd give me a big bear hug. And hmm. I, I will actually never forget, and I mentioned this in the article, one time he did that, um, maybe the last time, it was in the hotel lobby. And I looked over his shoulder, and there was his wife and his kids sort of looking at us anxiously, like huddled really closely together. Um, and at the time, I didn't think much of it. just thought, oh, they look kind of anxious. Maybe they're just very shy. You know, they don't speak the language. They're, they're still not really used to the United States. But in hindsight, I read a lot more into that look. Right. Um, and... You know, by then, Valero was apparently really starting to go off the rails. Uh, he was becoming consumed with jealous rages. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to isolate Valero the boxer from the awful person that he was, or certainly that he became. And, and you can't really sort of... I think when, you, when you're analyzing what could Valero have been as a boxer, you, can, you can't isolate them because right. that personality that became, obviously, was ultimately at some point going to affect who he became in the ring. It, if you just do that for a brief second, I think that he and Pacquiao would have been an incredible fight. Um, I spoke to Bob Arum about, about it, and he insisted that he had no plans ever to put the two of them together. But I remember that the situation at the time being very different. And Freddie Roach certainly remembers it differently, that there was a lot of talk about those two meeting. Um, I think that, well, first of all, by the time they would have met, you know, Valera's mental state might have been really spinning out of control. Right. Um, uh, but also, even assuming that he was kind of together, as good a fight as it would have been, I would have favored Pacquiao. Because of his speed, I think, if those guys had met. Um, uh, I just think, you know, it would have, Valero, I think, was down just once in his career, had a great chin, but, uh, you know, that might have been a factor. But I think Pacquiao's speed in, in combinations would have proven too much for him, and I, and I would have favored Pacquiao in that. But it really felt as if Valero was going places, but, you know, whether it was just who he was, whether it was something in his upbringing, whether it was the motorcycle crash that he had, right. whether it was just, you know, taking blows. Uh, he was just a personality that was that was spinning out of control with unfortunately tragic consequences. Yeah, as a fighter, I find him fascinating in that the boxer I saw was was very good and and destructive, but appeared somewhat one dimensional to me. Mm. But Dougie Fisher and others who saw him in the gym swore by his yeah. versatility and skill and insisted he was much more than the straight ahead destroyer we saw in the ring. Maybe so, but. The guy that I saw, I don't see him having a chance against 2010-ish Pacquiao. Um, they were, of course, two weight divisions apart. So, uh, you know, I, I might lean toward what Aram is saying here that I, I don't know how realistic it, it really was. I would think Valero would have had to come up from lightweight to welterweight yeah. to make it happen. And that's just one more disadvantage against a Pacquiao who was pretty much at the peak of his powers. But, you know, we'll, we'll never know. Unfortunately, uh, Valero was a deeply troubled person and mm. he goes into the boxing history books alongside 
Ike Bayabuchi, Salvador Sanchez, Tony Ayala, Gerald McClellan, fighters who, for a variety of reasons, will never know how great they could have been. But I, I ain't picking Valero to beat Pacquiao based on what no. I saw. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, all right, that will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to preview the September 19th card. Headlined by our guest Erickson Lubin and Terrell Cachet. Uh, and of course, our thanks again to Erickson for joining us this week. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.